This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. Reports of the demise of the American economy appear to be greatly exaggerated, at least so far. And last week brought one of the most hopeful sets of data we have yet seen in this cycle. The Federal Reserve hiked rates 25 basis points to a 22-year high on Wednesday, and the U.S. has already seen inflation fall, but it's doing so with minimal disruption to output or a still strong labor market. In fact, as we discussed two weeks ago with Marv Lowe, the unemployment rate now is a touch lower than when the Fed began hiking rates early last year. And as we saw last week, annualized GDP growth of 2.4% for Q2 indicates demand is also holding up pretty well. And then the release on Friday of core PCE suggests the Fed may actually have overestimated its end of year inflation forecast, such as the fall that we've seen so far. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. An earnings recession for the U.S. equity market has been talked about for at least the last year. And at the start of this year, nearly every recession probability model out there indicated a greater than 50% chance of an economic recession by next year. And rate markets have consistently underestimated the Federal Reserve's commitment to first hike rates and to keep hiking rates and then to keep rates higher for longer. Such has been the belief that past tightening would eventually tip the economy over. That that pessimism isn't completely unfounded, but had you invested on its natural implications, it's hard to think you'd be having a decent year. And this then begs the question of whether we are in one of those periods like the late 90s or even five and years ago, where U.S. markets, the U.S. economy can do no wrong, at least on a relative basis. Not only this time around is it the cleanest dirty shirt, by many measures, the economy is actually humming especially relative to Europe, China, and the UK. And that's what we're going to talk about with my guest this week, Lee Farage. Lee, of course, is my counterpart in the Americas. He has been pushing a variation on the line of American exceptionalism for a lot of this year. So we're going to talk about that. Lee, welcome back. Good to have you. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Indeed, indeed. So I've, I've built you up as this proponent of American exceptionalism uh, in your adopted country, our swapped countries, as it were. I wanted to start with that notion of relative performance against those other economies I cited. What would you say is the source of that divergence? Maybe the two or three things that contribute the most to that divergence. Let me start off. I mean, I think there are three main reasons. The first one is the labor market. There is a shortage of workers. I think that's structural. And that means that wages have stayed high. Average earnings now are, are positive in real terms, and that obviously helps the consumer. So the labor market is definitely one. Now, that one, though, is not necessarily unique to the U.S. We're seeing that all over the world. Now, there's a demographic question there that maybe we can do a future podcast on. It's a whole topic on its own. Mm. So that one's not necessarily unique to the U.S. The other two, though, are the first one is the level of excess savings that the consumer has. U.S. fiscal policy during the pandemic was very different from what we saw in most of the rest of the world in so much as the U.S. sent money directly to consumers. rest of the world, their general fiscal support was for companies, loans, grants, etc., to not lay people off. The U.S. went down the different route of sending checks out to the consumers. So that led to a huge increase in, in, in savings. 
by my estimates, there's still over a trillion dollars of excess savings that were built up during the pandemic to be worked through. They're, they're going down for sure, but they're still there. So that's that, that's one factor. The second one, though, and probably the most important, is the nature of the U.S. Labor, uh, the housing market. Mm. The U.S. is a fixed-rate economy. So 90% of U.S. mortgages are 30-year fixed. And if you look at aggregate data, the debt ser- the mortgage debt servicing costs in the U.S. now, or the latest data we had, which was for March, are lower than they were, as a percentage disposable income, are lower today than they were in January 2020. So we've had 520 base- 25 basis points of hikes. People, as a percentage disposable income, are paying less to service their mortgages now than they were in January 2020. And that's because during the pandemic, everyone refied yeah. to two and three quarters, two and seven eighths, 30 year fixed. So the Fed can hike as much as they like. If people are in the same house, they're not moving, they're not paying any more for their mortgage. And that is very, very different from what you're seeing in the UK, in, in the Eurozone, in Canada, in Australia, anywhere else you care to mention. You're just not having the same impact on the consumer as we're seeing in those other countries. And, and that is a crucial difference. You you tally that with, with the excess savings. This is why the U.S. consumer remains so strong compared with what we're seeing in the rest of the world. And thinking simply about those factors you've talked about, I want to ask the question in a more general sense in a moment. But I, I'm thinking specifically about savings as well as the low cost of finance and the potential. I mean, is it time simply that breaks things along those particular lines or do things like the reintroduction of student loan debt repayment later this year does that in your mind become a factor that chips away particularly at those excess savings amounts do you think that is a credible threat i guess this year it's another factor i'm not sure it's going to be the you know the straw that breaks the camel's back but it, it's another factor and 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 you're right, it's chipping away. This is this is the thing with, with the US, with the fixed rate environment we have. The Fed is really only chipping away at the consumer, whereas, you know, say the Bank of England or, or, or others that we mentioned before, they're taking a sledgehammer to the consumer with mm-hmm. the rate hikes that we've seen. The Fed is more of a pickaxe. It's just chipping away. And, and yeah, time will, will, will eventually have an impact so you know the long and variable lags that we hear so much about they're still there they haven't gone away it's just they're taking a lot longer this time because of the structural shortage of workers in the labor market because of the excess savings and because so many mortgages are fixed rate at very very low levels so look it's not to say monetary policy doesn't work anymore of course it does and, and there, there's an impact on, you know, new home sales or, you know, the, the amount of supply in the housing market because nobody wants to move because then you have to refire at a much higher level. You know, if people you know need to change their car, they're going to pay a lot more for that. So those factors chip away. I, I, I think, though, the bigger issue is going to be eventually it is going to come through the credit market. It mm-hmm. is going to come through the credit channel. We saw, you know, what happened back in March with SVB. And there, there are legitimate concerns that, that that financing for small companies will eventually be dry up the, the still constrained balance sheets of regional banks so far there's no sign that's happening if you look at the nfib survey 
financing and interest rates still not a major concern for small companies but as time goes on and existing facilities need to be re renegotiated and restarted they're going to be at a much higher rate and that's going to be eventually is going to have an impact it's just taking longer and it seems to me that it puts the fed in a real bind because they're indicating or inferring that they're they're basically done or that they're close to done they're not saying they won't deliver on that last hike that they've got in their projections, the dots for this year, but they're also not really pushing the line nearly as hard as they were when rates were a lot lower. And they're in fact talking about with inflation falling, policy getting tighter, potentially hinting, hinting then at the need to maybe ease to address that. But is there then, you, you talked about whether monetary policy works anymore or whether it, it, it's just less effective or if it's just chipping away. But let's, let's assume it does, and they need to keep going. Do you have a sense of what rate level it is that breaks the economy more generally, not thinking more broadly than the housing market or savings and things like that, but just a tightening of conditions is there a rate level in mind that you, you think that happens? Not really. There's not really a level of rates. As, as mm. you hinted at before, it's a time thing more than anything else. Mm. It's waiting for these effects to come through, and they will come through. But there's a time element to it. And I think that's why when you listen to the Fed and you see what they, they've been doing, there's there's been a, a definite progression in this tightening cycle. There was the 75 basis point period where they clearly messed up on transitory and had to catch up quickly. Then we dropped to 50 basis points. Then we dropped to, to 25. And then more recently, we've dropped basically the signal is 25 every other meeting. Mm -hmm. So they're slowing it down because, yeah, they are in restrictive territory now, but it's still not working quite as much as they would like it to. So they don't want to say we're done, but they want to buy themselves time to see those those long and variable lags come through. And I think, I think that's the stage we're at now. The problem the Fed has is the longer that inflation stays above target, the more people start to expect it. And this mm. is why we hear a lot about long-term inflation expectations. This is you know, the time element, because the argument is, well, if it's going to work eventually, why not just stop and wait? But their fear is, if they stop now and inflation doesn't carry on coming down, right? if we stop at 3%, I mean, headline's going to go up in July. Mm -hmm. Look at oils at a three-month high. Headline CPI in July of, of 2022 was flat month on month. Yeah. So we could easily see, we could easily see headline jump to three three or three four from three percent next month the the path outwards from there suddenly takes a jump up again so the fed is fearful that the longer we stay up here the more people adjust to it and expect it and, and you look at long-term inflation expectations and, and they haven't become de-anchored which is a fed phrase but they're creeping they're creeping yeah. up so the michigan Five to 10 years, we've revised down on Friday when we got the final number, but it's at 3%, has been consistently probably for the last year, 18 months. Prior to the, the pandemic, that five years, we averaged around 2.5%. We're now at three. Well, the, the, you know, the inflation target's two. You look at the New York Fed, um, five-year inflation expectations, the median there went up to 3% in June from 2.7. It's, it's the strongest reading since March of 2022. So they're creeping up. And that's something the Fed will not want to see. Because if people expect inflation to be 3% over five years or longer, 
they're going to want pay increases that are above that. And we, you know, we mentioned earlier about the structural element to, to, to the labor market. Well, if wages stay high, it's very hard to hit that 2% inflation target. And this brings up a question that's just, I think, mind-boggling for you and I in our previous discussions. And I'm pointing to a poll of the week that we took recently. I can't remember when, but it put the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, I think maybe the BOJ was in it, I'm not sure, but asking who was the first to cut. And the Fed has consistently been priced to cut. But the sentiment was overwhelming that the Fed of those central banks would be the first to cut. And I'll, I'll put my Tom Keen voice. This is astonishing, this, this statistic. Um, that's a terrible impression. Sorry, Tom. But I know you don't think that, but why do you think people do think the Fed is the first to cut in light of everything you've just gone through? I mean, it was a very bad Tom Keen impression. And anyway, he would ask me about Liverpool Football Club because that's what he normally does when I'm on with Tom Keen. But answering your question, I, I think, I mean, it, actually, the poll of the week was the week of July 11th. I think, though, where this comes from is people are reacting to or still think we're in the 2008 to 2020 era where the Fed playbook was to aggressively shift policy at the sign of any trouble. They were the, really the ones that led the way when they started QE2 with grow slow, QE3, the taper tantrum, the, the sell-off in Q4 2018. Every time we got a wobble on the data or we got a wobble in the financial markets, the Fed shifted policy, you know, restarted QE or stopped hiking rates, that, that spectacular one in December 2018. Mm-hmm. And I think the mentality in the market is that's still the Fed that any sign of trouble, that they are, you know, they are cheerleaders for asset prices, any sign of trouble, they will come in riding to the rescue, the Fed put, as we like to call it. The problem with that analysis, expectation, if you like, or bias, is in that period then from 08 to 2020, the Fed's biggest worry when it came to the inflation mandate was on the downside. We were yeah. persistently below target, and their biggest fear was 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 deflation, disinflation, you know, being below the two percent. So whenever you had that sort of economic or, or market turmoil, it was entirely consistent with the inflation mandate for the Fed to come in and ease policy, free QE or, or rate cuts or whatever, because. If they didn't do anything at that time, inflation would move away from the target to the downside. The Fed reaction function then was very much to head off any trouble. And, and you know, the secondary impact was, was boost asset prices. You know, now we're at the point where inflation is above target. So, you know, it was telling for me when we had the, the, the regional bank wobbles back in March that we did see policy to support regional banks. But the Fed still hiked. They ring-fenced it very much. They supplied liquidity to the regional banks, but still kept hiking and still maintained QT as well. That's what I'm struggling with, is why is that dovishness not also seen in other central bank pricing, where the, the experience, at least the last 15 years, has been quite similar. But I think the thing is, the Fed always leads the way. Yeah. So expectation is who's going to be the first to cut well the fed always lead the way right so they'll be the first to cut 
Yeah. I just think this cycle is very different. Going back to the very start of our conversation about U.S. exceptionalism, the Fed won't be the first to lead the way this time. The, the, the underlying economy is much stronger here because of the factors we talked about. Yeah. So I think others will cut before the Fed this time. Thinking about that in the context of asset markets then, I talked about this in the introduction, this potentially being the U.S. above all, not just when it comes to the economy, as we've talked about, but asset markets. Do you think there's a possibility that the dollar, fixed income, and equities all outperform the rest of the world? I think it's possible. I think this is a very different world from, certainly from 2014 and 2021, maybe more akin to the late 90s. My concern will, will, will comes over the equity side of it. Mm. Because almost for, for the equi- equity for the dollar to outperform from here, which is which is my expectation, we need to price more for the Fed, and we at the very least we need to take out the cuts that we have for 2024, or, or a lot of the cuts we have for 2024. The question then is, well, can equities hold up given current valuations if we do reassess? that path of interest rates for the Fed. And, and I'm not sure. You, you really, the equity valuations to be justified, we really need that Goldilocks scenario where the data's not too hot because if it's too hot, we have to price more Fed hikes. It can't be too cold because that means we, we you know, recession fears come back. And, and that's not the soft landing. You really need that, that central path of not too hot, not too cold. And at the same time, inflation comes down consistently, even though growth holds up. And and I don't know, I, I really still think that is that is trying to thread the eye of a needle. You mentioned the dollar, and that's where I was hoping to finish today. And you mentioned potentially the, the taking out of rate cuts next year, dollar supportive factor. And yet we've kind of been there this year, we have taken out the rate cuts that were priced in for this year. We have raised terminal rate expectations for this year as well. And the dollar's gotten occasional boosts from that, but really, at least on a DXY basis, it's it's kind of gone nowhere. You know, a drift of 1% to 2% lower on average since the start of this year. With all of that having happened, why hasn't the dollar gotten more of a boost? And why would it then get a boost going forward? Because I think when you, when you look at relative rates, we might have you know, shifted a bit on the Fed. But relative rates, particularly when you're looking into sort of 2024 or beyond, remain negative for the dollar. You know, even over the rest of this year, we have nine basis points priced in for the Fed. We have 15 for the ECB, so not much more, admittedly. But the Bank of England, we have 85 still against nine for the Fed. But then the cuts are more important. So you, you look at 2024. But the Fed, we have you know the first cut fully priced in May. We have 60 basis points by March. We have 120 basis points for the whole of next year. What do we have for the ECB? Maybe a cut in September. Look at two-year rates, two-year implied policy rates. So they're at 368 for the Fed against 550 now. ECB is 313. In two years, that's a one percent swing in favour of, of ECB rates over Fed rates in the next two years. Bank of England, four eighty-seven in two years. That's a one and a half percent swing. So when you look out two years, we are still pricing very much that the Fed is the laggard. The Fed's the one that cuts. People, you know, others don't react in the same way. And I think that's what's 
sort of you know hampering the dollar i think it's only when we have some sort of more meaningful relative rethink about where we are in two years that you start to see the dollar consistently gain mm. that's the bit we need to get to i think to see the dollar move that that i've been expecting for a while so i have to finish on a, a trade idea i hear the jazz pianist warming up in the background so it's almost time to go the dollar long, what's your preferred way of expressing that, say, into the end of this year? What's the, the easiest, the path of least resistance for a dollar long? Tim, you know me. You've known me a long time. You know it's <laughs> going to be sterling. You know. <laughs> As you but, said to Tom Keane not so long ago, some crazy level. I said 115 to Tom Keane not so long ago. I, I, I'll say 120 to you. <laughs> I'll change a little bit, but I'm not giving I don't know, up. man. There might be more people listening to this podcast than Bloomberg TV. I don't know. There might be. There might be. These um, days. Look, 85 basis points priced in for the Bank of England the rest of the year. I, I, I just I just don't see it. I mean, you know, we're going to get a hike, you know, this week. But I think the message is going to be much more dovish than people think. It's. I think we're going to have an ECB Fed playbook of data dependent. Mm. Um, and that that's got to leave sterling vulnerable. We, you know, people have been had the sterling short. They, they they've been hurt on it many many times. It's still there to an extent, but much less pronounced than it was. Um, and I I still think we'll end the year below one twenty sterling. So that's the easiest way to play it for me. Look, euro. I think we'll, we'll I think we'll see below one hundred five over the remainder of this year. In the mm. next three months or so, nothing. Not going back down to parity. Nothing that dramatic, but. But I think we see 105 in, in euro. But generally, yeah, it's dollar. But the easiest way to play it, I think, is, is sterling. I, I don't think good. that's the easiest way. Very good. Lee, I think we, we have to leave it there. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for, for doing this. And thanks for providing such an expansive view set there. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Tim. Absolutely. Mr. Jazzman, you can start up now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, 
for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.